Welcome to episode 185 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the Meteorite Collecting Edition. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So, do you like to rock, Shane? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I don't know, is that like a Van Halen song? or I, I don't I know. I want to rock. Whoa, yeah. we are live and recording. I can't believe you just <laughs> did that. That's amazing. So yeah, like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Van Halen, those are the top three heavy metal bands of all time. And I mean, who doesn't like a good Van Halen song, really? <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> So you are a meteorite collector. I am, uh, although not super active anymore, um, but I still have them in my possession and uh, I think they're pretty cool. And meteorites contain heavy metals. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. There so we have both the rock and the heavy metal here. So all good. Yes. All right. Moving on from uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I was teaching my astronomy class in person, um, where we would go and stand in front of a group of people, and we haven't done that now for almost two years, um, from, from time to time, you would come in and bring in your, your collection of meteorites and hand them around. That was always uh, uh, pretty uh, well-received. I'll say that. It was very cool to be able to do that and, and see these space rocks. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty neat. Um... Uh, you know, we'll get into some of the details around uh, the meteorites and why they might be interesting to some people to collect. Um, but it is neat to hold something that is not from this planet originally. You know, it came from somewhere out in space and, and landed here. So there's a, I don't know, there's just an interesting feeling that I get, you know, uh, in possessing them and holding them. And I, I think a lot of people, when they, you know, hold a meteorite and they start to fascinate about where this thing may have come from. Uh, think about the voyage it took to get here uh, and the fact that it survived a, a very chaotic, uh, you know, entrance into our atmosphere and then eventually reach the soil. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's kind of neat. And uh, it's, a, it's a fun sort of sidearm addition to the, the hobby of astronomy. Um, and it certainly does not really fit in line with our mandate of talking about visual observing, but it is still an, another way to, uh, to enjoy the hobby. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of neat here. I don't know whether it's the cold or or what it is exactly, but um, you know, it, it seems like every region has um, uh, different interests. You know, a, a wide variety of interests. Like I know uh, when I uh, lived in Ontario, there's a lot of telescope builders out there, um, but I think I only ever met like one person who ever really collected meteorites before. And there was a few people that that owned you know like two or three meteorites or something like that. Um, but then when I came out here, I was really surprised to find like, there, there's several people out here that record there's, there's you and Rick, and I think at least a few others. And, uh, and you guys have these pretty good sized collections. It always looks like when you, when you show up, it looks like you're going fishing because they're almost in like a fishing tackle box or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think Rick uses, uh, some, some, uh, yeah, kind of tackle box style, uh, organizers to, uh, hold his meteorites and, uh, they actually work pretty good for that purpose um, because typically most meteorites are are not super big because if they're really big, they're they're really heavy and and probably worth a lot of money too. So, you know, most people that uh, have meteorites or collect them will probably have more manageable sized uh, specimens or items. Mm -hmm. 
And, yeah. and we also did have a big meteorite fall here. I think one of the one of the larger ones in recent years. I think it was in 2007. There was the Buzzard Cooley um, meteorite fall, and uh, this was one of those first ones where um, you know uh, people had just in, a lot of people had installed those dash cams and and had cell phones and security cameras up in in large enough numbers that they were kind of like randomly catching it if they were correctly oriented when, uh, when the object came in over, it came in over sort of Northern or, or Eastern Alberta or something like that. And then it landed in uh, Northwestern Saskatchewan in a place called Buzzard, uh, Buzzard Cooley. So am I, am I recalling that correctly? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, yes, it was 2007, I believe. Um, the uh, the the dash cam reference is important because um, you know a lot of people kind of caught this thing by mistake on various cameras, um, and that data helps uh, people determine like a lot of um, a lot of information about the meteorite, like where it entered um, and where it likely landed, and then you know if you can do that, you have a, a better. Um, uh, or, or better odds of, you know, recovering some of this meteorite, which, um, you know, then is studied and, um, has all sorts of scientific benefits. Um, so this one that landed in our province, um, it, it was, I guess about five times as bright as a full moon. So mm-hmm. just to give you an idea of how bright, uh, these things can get, uh, about 400 people reported, uh, seeing it, whether it was with their eyes or, uh, with cameras, <laughs> And, um, this thing was about the size of a desk, but it weighed, uh, like the mass of it, it weighed about 10 tons. So a very dense piece of rock, uh, that came, uh, that came into the atmosphere, it broke up, um, and then spewed thousands, you know, of fragments all over the place of varying sizes. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the notes here on uh, Wikipedia is that, uh, this event, uh, set a new Canadian record for the most number of pieces recovered from a single meteorite fall. And um, I think it's even quite like the amount that was recovered is quite large, even like on a global scale. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, that was pretty neat um, to have something like that happen in our backyard. And uh, it, it, you know, we, we've said many times, you know, that this is a farming province. So basically, you know, these meteors were strewn across a lot of farmers fields, but Luckily, this happened kind of in the wintertime. So there wasn't any farming taking place, which why that was lucky is that allowed for the recovery to take place. Um, Had this fallen in the summertime, um, you know, a lot of these meteors would have been lost forever because um, farmers will not let you traipse through their fields, uh, you know, because you're going to damage and reduce their yield. Um, And then, you know, once everything's harvested, the ground gets tilled up and, uh, you know, these meteors then are, are gone. So because this happened in the wintertime, there is a huge, um, a huge effort put out by a number of different people to recover these meteors. And, uh, as such, you know, uh, like I said, over more, over a thousand fragments have been collected. Um, and, uh, I happen to own one of those, which is kind of neat. Um, it's one of my, um, I guess it's one of my more prized pieces just because it did land here in our province. Yeah. 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 And wasn't uh, that one that, uh, that our friend Rick recovered? Is that? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Yeah. Rick, Rick Husiak is a very active amateur astronomer. 
Um, and he's also a very active meteorite collector. And uh, he, uh, he had found this one um, during the search after that fall. Yeah, and uh, he's one of the one of the folks we uh, frequently observe with when we go to grasslands. Uh, just about every year, every year that it doesn't conflict with uh, with the uh, Saskatchewan Summer Star Party, who who he acts as, I think, one of the main hosts of. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the main organizers of that. So, uh, so as long as as long as it doesn't conflict, I gotta I gotta get notes out. I have I have the dates now. I gotta settle up for last year with with people and get the dates out for for next year. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, well, I mean, not unfortunately. So fortunately, you know, eventually the uh, star star party that we help uh, put on at the at the Grasslands National Park in in two different locations. Um, sometimes they would pick dates that were on the full moon. And, uh, I think that that was challenging for us. Cause when we go down there, we want to go to dark skies, but anyway, I, I won't get into that. Um, I'm going to take us way off topic cause I don't know anything about meteors really. So where do we start? Where do we start with, uh, with you, Shane, where do we start with collecting where, where you want to begin? Um, well, uh, maybe let's just talk a little bit about the difference between a meteorite and a meteor, um, because they are very different and we hear a lot about meteor showers, um, so a meteor is something that burns up in the atmosphere. It never reaches, uh, it never reaches earth's soil. And, um, a meteorite is something that makes it through the atmosphere, lands on earth, and then has the potential to be recovered and, uh, you know, added to your collection. And the one thing I learned from Rick is when you find a big piece of metal that's underground, what do you call that? I don't know. A meteor wrong. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. As, as opposed to a meteor, right? And yeah, yeah. I, I never, I guess that's a pretty common joke in the yeah. meteor hunting circles. I never heard that before. And he told that in astronomy um, talk once. And I think everybody else had heard that joke except for me. And I thought they were going to ask me to leave. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I guess why, why collect this stuff? Um, I talked a little bit about it already, but it's pretty cool to hold something in your hand that came from space. Um, and, and these meteorites are all very, very old. You know, you're probably looking at least, uh, like four and a half billion years old, maybe more. Um, and a lot of these, um, you know, are theorized to be some of the building blocks of our solar system. So it's sort of leftover material, um, from, from the Genesis of our solar system. Um, so, you know, all of that is very cool. Um, you know, there's scientific study, uh, that can take place with these things. So that's another reason to collect these. Um, it can be a little bit of an investment if you're, um, somebody that's looking for, you know, real diversification in your portfolio. Um, when you, when you <laughs> have say. a, when you have a limited supply of, uh, of an object, um, you know, it, the demand goes up, uh, the value goes up, um, and, and really per weight, a lot of meteors are more, uh, more expensive or more valuable than gold, uh, in a lot of cases, or in some cases, I should say. Yeah. So I want to hear from people that went into the bank with their meteorite collection when they were trying to put up equity for a loan or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, diversification is really uh, reaching a lot of different uh, sectors right now. So don't, uh, don't underestimate it. I might still uh, have student loans, but what do you see my rock collection? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, the, the other thing that I think is super cool about collecting meteorites is, um, some of them have originated from other planets, uh, in our solar system, as well as our moon, uh, which I'll get into maybe a little bit, 
uh, as we come up. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of different styles of meteorites too, which, um, the names talk about kind of their makeup, uh, chondrites are, uh, probably the most common ones and they're more of a stony meteorite. Although all meteorites do have some metal uh, content in them and respond to magnets. Um, so chondrites are about 80% of all meteor falls uh, on earth. Um, the next most common one is a uh, achondrite, uh, which again is more of a stony meteorite. Um, there's nickel iron, uh, meteors, which are quite pretty. And they're about 5% of all falls. And then the rarest is, uh, known as palisite. And, um, this is probably one, maybe 2% of all falls. And what's really cool about palisite is it's, it's like, it's stony, uh, but it has a lot of iron in it. Uh, and also some, uh, like kind of like different colored glass that's in it. And, uh, they make for some real, uh, real pretty things to look at anyway. Yeah. I um, think, I think I've seen some of those and either you, you have them or, or Rick does and they get polished up and it almost looks like a, a miniature version of, of the, the inside of, of a church or something like that with its stained glass windows. They're really neat. Yeah. Yeah. They are super neat. Um, I do have one They're They're very fragile too. And, um, you know, part of having a meteorite collection is the preservation of it because they are metal. They will want to rust and deteriorate. Um, so a good thing to use or what I use is just, uh, like a, a thin application of, uh, like of a gun oil or, or an oil meant to preserve metals like that. Um, so, uh, uh a gun oil, that's what it does is it prevents uh, firearms from rusting. Uh, it's quite cheap and, and you can apply that to your meteorite as well. Hmm. I, I have a question for you now. I don't, I don't want to surprise you with this question, Shane. Um, but I was, I was thinking about this as, as we were chatting here and uh, like I said, I, I don't know that much about meteorites or meteorite collecting, but when we go out to see a meteor shower, so right now, I think it's, uh, it's late tonight. So we're recording this on, on the second, I think early hours of, of the third and into the fourth or around this time in January, um, we have the quadratic meteor shower, which, uh, which we chatted about. And most of these meteor showers uh, that we see, whether it's the Perseids in the summer or the, the Orionids, they all, they all originate from comets. And so I'm, I'm thinking that the meteors uh, or the meteorites that you have in your collection, uh, they would sort of be of a different origin than the meteors that you're going to see uh, during a meteor shower. Is, is that correct? Like, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here, but I just sort of thinking about it while you're chatting, that they would be a different type of meteor, wouldn't they? For sure. Yeah. Um, the meteor showers, uh, that you just referenced, um, what, what we're seeing there when you see, you know, in, in parentheses here, a shooting star or a meteor, you're seeing something that is about the size of a grain of sand off of a beach entering the atmosphere at an extremely high rate, mm -hmm. burning up, giving off, you know, it's, it's energy and you see this streak of light. Now, if you see a real bright meteor, during a meteor shower. Um, and sometimes they're referenced as fireballs even, which really can light up, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit, you know, as bright or brighter than a full moon. Sometimes, um, you're, you're not, you're still not that big. Um, like a bright meteor is maybe the size of a cherry and then something that would be considered a fireball might be the size of your fist. Hmm. So, relatively small objects and they just burn up in the atmosphere and they, uh, they really don't reach this, uh, the earth's, uh, soil. 
Now, a meteorite will be, um, you know, its own rock, so to speak, that, that, you know, enters the atmosphere. And, and this is happening all of the time. It's just most of these rocks get burned up upon entry. Um, a lot of things have to happen for it to survive the entry and then actually have, um, you know, like uh, specimens that, that uh, are recoverable. Um, so when that happens, it becomes a quite, uh, you know, quite an exciting thing. Um, the, the other part of it too, is, you know, the majority of the planet is covered in water, um, or, uh, very inaccessible, you know, it's the, the Arctic, the Antarctic, um, and many meteorites will fall in those areas and the Southern Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the, you know, it's basically unrecoverable at that point. So, you know, there's a lot that has to happen for a meteor to survive entry. And then, you know, you just hope that it actually lands on soil and, you know, in some place where people can, can go and, and, uh, you know, recover some of the, the items. Okay. So I have another question. These aren't, I know I put questions in the show notes, but I'm just kind of thinking, so I, I got to admit meteors and meteorite collecting is something I don't get excited about until I hear like you or Rick talk about them. And then like I, you guys are really passionate about it and it kind of really kind of fires me up and it gets, it gets me thinking about them. And I'm like, huh, this is something that I could really get into. And then once the day passes, I'm, I'm off to other things like my library. Um, but, you know, just think about this. So like with your meteor meteorites, so how many meteorites do you have in your collection? Mm, I don't know, probably seven or eight, I think. Okay. So, so you've got a, a good handful and, and like, that's a lot. Cause these things are not inexpensive. And I think Rick has like around a few dozen or so, although he goes collecting. So I think he has kind of like two allotments. He has sort of the ones that mm-hmm. he co- collects like himself. He's been up to the white court meteorite uh, crater and gone hunting up there. Um, and he, and he was one of the people that was doing the recovery at buzzer Cooley. And I know he's been to a few others and then, then he collects sort of, a few specimens for himself and then a, then a pile um, that he's, he's able to, uh, to sell. And so he does this legally um, because he ends up getting signed on as part of the recovery team. And I think they, they have to turn over like 90% of what they find, but then they can somehow they can keep a small part of it. But like, I was wondering though um, with these ones that you have, are they ones that would have fallen like as, as like a singular rock? So so does it work such that like, like there's sort of a, a bigger bit coming in? Okay. Let's say it's something the size of like, I don't know, like, uh, like, a, I don't know, something that's maybe a couple meters across and then it kind of just sort of burns all around. And then, and then at the end, kind of like in that Simpsons episode, it's about the size of a, of a lump of coal. And then you kind of pick it up and then it, that's sort of one singular bit or, are most of the meteorites that, that you have or that people would be collecting part of larger falls, like we saw with the Buzzard Cooley meteor, where it came in, there was a big explosion, and then there was just all these massive hunks that kind of fell off in different directions, some as small as a pea, some some as large as, uh, I don't know, like a can of apple juice or something like that. Yeah, so, some will break up in the atmosphere. Uh, I think most do to a certain degree. Um and then you you have you you can end up with a very widespread field to to collect from. Um, although some will, uh, I guess, maybe survive or remain mostly intact through the atmosphere, and then upon impact, um, kind of almost explode, I guess. And then there's mm-hmm. fragments everywhere. Um, so there's uh, there's a number of ways uh, that a meteorite can get dispersed. Um, 
But I think most of the time there will be some event in the atmosphere that causes it to, I guess, explode, right? Or, or shed some of its material. And uh, then, then again, you get that wider spread. The, the white court one, I believe, was one that exploded upon impact. Which yeah, that was a big one. Yeah. 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 It left, uh, I remember seeing the meteorite hunters there and it left a big, big impact. And if, if you remember that meteorite hunter show, I remember they had like a really funny picture of Rick in the show. He like helped out with the show, I think. And they had a, they had a picture of him uh, in, in that episode holding some of the, uh, some of the meteors, I, either for that one or for the buzzard cooling one. It was one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember uh, which one it was, but you're right. Yeah. I think he was involved with them. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to take you off track. I know you have a pilot. I've got, I do have lots of questions. Yeah. No, no interject. Um, Maybe one thing I'll say though, about uh, the recovery Um, basically like if, if the recovery is on public, at least here in Canada, I can't speak for anywhere else, but here in Canada, if the recovery is on public land uh, you can just go and collect. And, uh, that's it. So like the white court meteor is uh, public land. However, there is a area that's fenced off that you cannot enter because they don't want anybody messing around with it for, uh, to, they, they, they don't want the site tainted for research purposes in the future. Mm. Uh, but outside of that, you're welcome to do whatever you want. So you can go collect there and whatever you recover is yours. There's no obligation to turn it over. Um, and you can keep it, you can sell it, you can do whatever you would like with it. Um, the buzzard Cooley one, uh, a little bit different, like the only public land around there were the roads. So if you found something on the road, yeah, you could keep it and do whatever you wanted with it, but most of it fell on private land. Uh, mm-hmm. it was all farmland. Um, so in order to, um, uh, legally, uh, hunt or collect anything there, you would have to talk to the landowner and make an arrangement with them because mm-hmm. essentially the landowner owns all of the meteorites that landed on their land. So what Rick did is, um, uh, at least with one, f- uh, landowner, um, he negotiated some sort of, a like an 80, 20 split, like Rick keeps 80% and gives 20% to the, the landowner or something like that. But, um, yeah. You know, it was uh, basically it's whatever you would work out with the landowner. Yeah, I think think they were part of a larger recovery team, and and yeah, they they had negotiated to to split part, and then part of it was going for research purposes, and then they could keep keep some uh, some other parts of it or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm, cool. So yeah, where where can you find these things? Um, well, we just talked about one way you can find them on your own. Now this is probably um, easier stated than actually realized <laughs> in reality. Um, so if you want to, you know, get out and search for some on your own, it's, there's two things that you have to do. One, a lot of research. You have to find out where meteors may have landed. Um, there's resources out there. Uh, the RASC Observer's Handbook lists a whole bunch of known uh, impacted areas across, uh, North America for sure. Maybe the world. I'm not, I can't quite remember. Um, so, you know, that's one way. Um, the other way would be just other research, you know, find out where other meteors may have landed. Um, and then the other part to this is you need to have some cardiovascular endurance because you're going to do a lot of walking to try to find these things. And the good part though, is it's like, there's no real other like financial investment, uh, to find these things. All you really need is a stick with a magnet on the bottom. And when you've located the area that you think there's going to be meteors, you walk around with this stick, 
um, and you hope to hear, you know, something attached to it. Mm. Now, if, if a rock does attach to it, um, it's not a guarantee that you found a meteor, um, because there are iron, uh, deposits on earth and rocks with iron on them that are of terrestrial origins. Um, but if you do have something that, that clicks to a magnet, um, you know, there is a decent chance you may have found a meteorite. Um, so if you believe you found one, there's usually, um, you know, all over the place, there's, uh, universities or, or, well, typically universities that, uh, research meteors, and then they can sometimes validate whether or not you have one. Um, but you know, each person would have to, I guess, figure it out for their region. Um, so that's one way. The other way is to, to buy it. So, you know, you, you mentioned Rick, uh, I know Rick and, um, you know, I, um, uh, so the meteors that I bought from him, I, I know their origin. I, I know, I know the story behind them. Um, the other way though, is there's dealers online, um, that you can, that you can buy from the thing though, to note about this is, uh, and you mentioned it, Chris, the meteor wrongs, there's a lot of fakes out there. There's a lot of, uh, uh, rocks that will be uh, positioned or advertised as a meteorite that really aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, uh, there's an organization out there that was created to help validate vendors so that you as a buyer have a little more protection. Um, so the organization is called the ICMA. Um, I should, uh, I had that up and I astronomers and their acronyms, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, meteorite. While you look, um, while you look, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell a short story if I can, if I, if I got 30 seconds, I want to tell a fun Yeah, story. go for it, go for it. All right. So like I said, I'm not a meteor, meteorite collector or anything. And, and most of my friends have been observers and not meteorite collectors, um, though it's more popular out here. Um, but my friend, Tim had an amazing story, Shane, amazing story. So I believe, I believe this is how it went, that he was in the parking lot of a McDonald's. And he was, he was uh, a motorcycle person. And so he's, uh, he's there. He's a motorcycle mechanic and a motorcycle rider. And he was there. And I don't know whether he's on his motorcycle or what, but I, f- I feel like he was in the story. And uh, he, was, he was sitting there on his bike or whatever, like eating a hamburger. And uh, this rock fell from the sky <laughs> right in front of him and kind of skipped across the parking lot. And so he went over and he, and he picked it up. And he put it in his pocket and he always kept it. And then when he became, he just thought that was a weird thing. And when he got interested eventually in astronomy, um, he took a magnet to it. And sure enough, it was magnetic. And he always held the belief that it had been a, it had been a meteor and that he was just in the right place at the right time to see, uh, to see a pebble um, about the size of a very large marble fall, fall from above and actually skip across a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty interesting story. Isn't that wild? So, but he, I think he lost it or, or something to that effect. He misplaced it maybe is the best way to put it. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Well, and, and if you have a meteor that has a, like a story, like if a meteor crashes through like, you know, a, a car or something like that, yeah. it actually adds to the value of it because it's, uh, you know, even, even more of a rare event, but. Yeah. And he had, he had said that it was, uh, it was a, like one of those places in a, in a huge parking lot. And he was, it was sort of like off hours, like when there wasn't many people around and there was no vehicles or anything going by. And he was sort of way off in a corner somewhere. And there, there was no other way for this rock to come, you know, um, you know, and, and go skipping across like a brand new parking lot kind of thing. He was very easily able to go over and, and identify the one that had, 
that he had just seen come down from the sky. It, like saw it kind of go whoop, like right through his field of vision and then go skipping across. So it's, it's unlikely that it came from like a car whipping it up. And then of course it was magnetic, quite magnetic. So I think that's one of the telling points you were referring to earlier that if they're magnetic, then that's, uh, that's kind of a tell. Yeah, for sure it is. Yep. So well, I got the acronym wrong. It's IMCA, International Meteorite Collectors Association. So that mm. makes a lot more sense to me. Um, so if you're buying from somebody, you want to make sure that they're IMCA members. So typically uh, a vendor would list their membership number, and then you can go to the IMCA site and validate that it's, you know, they are who they say they are. Um, and then this gives you um, just sort of like, uh, I guess, maybe a bit of a, an assurance that what you're, what you think you're buying is actually legitimate and, uh, and not a fake. Cool. Yeah. Um, so some of the meteorites that I have, uh, you, you can get meteors that have been validated, uh, that originated on the moon. So, uh, the, well, actually the moon, Mars and Venus. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is those bodies have had an impact, uh, at another time in, in history, right. Where, uh, a meteor, a meteorite hit them. And then when that happens, it ejects a bunch of the material from that body. So let's talk about the moon. So something hits the moon, a bunch of moon rock and dust gets kind of shot up into space. And because there's really no atmosphere and very little gravity, some of this stuff escapes the lunar, um, well, just the lunar gravitational effect. And then these becomes uh, independent sort of rogue rocks floating through space. Some of these will come towards earth, survive entrance and land, uh, and become something that can be recovered. And, uh, there's been validated recoveries. Like I say, that originated from the moon, Mars and Venus. And, uh, I do have, you know, small specimens of all of those, uh, in my collection. And, and again, I just think it's super cool that, you know, six feet behind me right now, Chris, I've got, you know, pieces of rock that are from Mars, Venus, and our moon. So I, mm. those are some of my prized possessions too. Those three, uh, alongside the, uh, the buzzard Cooley meteor are, uh, are pretty fascinating to me. And pink Floyd's the dark side of the moon is a great example of space rock for those that are not meteorite. anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so the value of these things, uh, there's a few factors, uh, that go into determining value, uh, but they can range from not very much money to a lot of money. Um, so it, it's determined by size. Um, some of it is determined by, of course, rarity. Um, and then, uh, sometimes also the location of the find, uh, some mm. locations are just more desirable than others. Um, and price per gram can range from like 50 cents to $25,000. Um, wow. So it's incredible. Um, there's, uh, there's just not a lot of this stuff out there. And, uh, again, it, it's desirable to a lot of people. Um, I've been seeing a bit of a, this is not a new trend, but like some wedding rings now are including, you know, meteorite in them just because of its rarity. It's almost being viewed like a gemstone in a way. And, and the, depending on the meteor, they're, they're quite pretty. Um, especially the nickel iron ones, they have some really neat patterns in them. When you apply, like when you polish the surface and apply a certain acid, I've never done this, but you know, I, I have a, a meteorite where this was done to it. And, um, it just is a, a very pretty, uh, uh, result that is, uh, just again on a ring or a piece of jewelry looks pretty cool too. Mm -hmm. Cool. Very cool. 
Um, wow. Yeah. It's, it's really neat to kind of think about these, these sort of things, especially in, uh, you know, in relation to like, you know, actually being able to see these things come in. So one of, one of the uh, most memorable talks that I ever went to was by uh, Roy Bishop and he's a emeritus professor of physics at Acadia University in, in Nova Scotia. And um, one thing he did that was super cool, and I, I can't remember whether he took one of the photos or whether he took other people's photos, but there were um, there was a, a meteor um, streaking through the sky that was captured um, at, a, at a couple different locations uh, back in Nova Scotia. And he actually created like a... It, it was a, he took, this is like a physical thing. This is like a computer thing. He actually did all these calculations and he created like a map of Nova Scotia and he created a, um, a brass. And I think it was, it was something like brass, but he created it like this metal. And it was a metal that was very similar to the type of meteorite, um, that would have been seen based on like, a, like an analysis of the color that was giving off. And then he had that sitting on top of the map of Nova Scotia, it was sort of like just off the coast. And, it, and what this was, was the streak that it left through the sky to scale, like how big that streak would have actually been, you know, in relation um, to the province. It was, it was so cool to see, um, you know, like this visual representation of the streak in the sky compared to the size of the province. And I was shocked at how large it was. I forget how big it was, but, um, you know, uh, dozens of kilometers, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, um, you know, in, in relationship, uh, you know, to, to sort of these, the scale of the earth. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, it, it's a fascinating thing for sure. Um, and, and I think probably most amateur astronomers, if you've, if you've been out enough, uh, observing uh, particularly at dark sites, um, everybody seems to have at least one or two stories, uh, of seeing like a real, real bright, uh, like fireball that just, you, you know, completely makes it look like daytime, even though there's no light to be found. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, seeing this stuff enter and then knowing that you have some, some, you know, some of these rocks that actually survived entry is, is really cool to me. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the other interesting ones, uh, that happened, uh, when I was in, in Nova Scotia was, uh, guy, I think we're going to try to have Dave on the show, but Dave, uh, Lane, uh, at his Abbey Ridge observatory was able to be part of a network that we get, uh, notified, when there was uh, an inbound uh, near-Earth object. And there was one coming in, I forget how big it was, it wasn't that big, but he was able to get pictures of of this object. And then it came in over Africa or somewhere like that. Um, it was a desert area anyway. And, and so he had photos of it in space, and then he had photos of it when it was recovered. And they were able to use like people's... Um, you know, uh, robotic observatories, just as they were coming online back, uh, I guess it was about 15 or 16 years ago. And, and they were able to use like all these uh, amateur observatories to be able to, you know, calculate where, where it would have come down. And, you know, they were able to kind of get eyes on it as it came through the atmosphere and then where it would have eventually landed. And then they were able to send a team out to go and recover it. I, I forget which, which uh, meteorite it was, but it's pretty famous one, pretty neat to be able to do that now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a fun little hobby. Um, and you know, if people are interested in, in collecting meteors, 
Um, you don't have to have hundreds of dollars to get into this. You can, uh, you can buy a lot of inexpensive meteors. Um, you can, you can buy really cool meteors. Like again, my lunar meteor, uh, I don't want to overstate it. It's not that much larger than a small pebble. It's really, really small. So, you know, you can sort of, um, tailor this part of, or you can tailor this hobby to whatever budget you want. It's just, um, you know, if your budget is low, like mine is for meteors, you're not going to acquire very large specimens. Sometimes you'll, you know, you'll have smaller remnants, but, uh, nonetheless, it's still really cool to me. Yeah. I was actually watching, um, it's, um, it's a more recent, although it's not, I don't think it was from the past year or two, but, but even from like 2016 through 2018, something like that. Um, a sky at night episode and they were at this, um, it was like a club or university observatory out in a field somewhere. And they went up on the roof with a magnet, like a long skinny magnet. Um, and they, they dragged it across or they went and harvested some of the, uh, material that was, um, you know, collecting on, on the roof somehow. And, uh, I have heard of them dragging magnets across roofs and then they had, I don't know if it was just a super high powered microscope or an electron microscope or something like that. And they were able to take the samples underneath. And the person was saying, well, you know, you know, you, you could have to search like a dozen roofs in order to get like some micrometeorites. And then the first one they looked at ended up being like, um, a micrometeorite or, or a really high candidate that they were going to send off for further analysis. The guy was like, Whoa, this is amazing. Um, and I guess that's, that's one of the things like you were saying, there's so many tons of it that are landing on earth at any one time, but you know, even the little ones that come in that are the size of the grain of sand or, or, or pea sized, if, if you get a pretty good fireball, um, you know, there's like some remnants of, of dust that as they burn up, that, uh, that little bit of ash kind of eventually uh, floats to the surface in the form of micrometeorites. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget how much weight the earth gains every year just by collecting space dust, essentially. It's quite a bit. Maybe that's my problem. Well, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and then what else? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool to think about. And we have some, some impact. There's, there are some impact craters around. I think there's one over by the Cypress Hills somewhere, but you can't really, you can't really see them though. I don't, I don't think they're just sort of anomalies that they've detected uh, through geophysical means or stuff like that. Yeah. A lot of them are, are quite deep uh, in the soil and are not accessible. Um, there is a, there is a lake in Northern Saskatchewan that was formed by a meteor thousands and thousands of years ago. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I can't remember. Um, Probably called rabbit. They have funny names here. Everything's like rabbit lake or deer lake or something. They're all named after animals, aren't they? No. Well, some are, but, um, uh, the lakes of the North, uh, are, um, every, every person who gave their life in oof, uh, world war one and two, for sure. Maybe. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they ended up uh, naming a lake after these folks. So. Oh, so they're okay. I knew there was, I knew there had to be some story around them because it seemed like there was some sort of pattern. Oh, wow. So it just happened to me that, yeah, just, just the, the way that names fell in, in certain spots. Wow. That's uh that's uh, an interesting fact. Huh? Neat. Do you, do you remember which one it was that, uh, that, that is the lake here. I think okay. it might actually be called crater lake. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. You'll have to go up and you should go fishing there. Well, it's quite a ways North. I believe I don't You're just think not it's dedicated enough. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can fly me there. <laughs> yeah. People have no idea. Like I had no idea how big Saskatchewan was till I moved here. And 
the, the road, there's, there's the sign, the road don't go there from here kind of thing. And, and that's true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. There's one in Quebec too. And it, you know, you can see it from space kind of thing. And then of course there's meteor crater. Have you ever been down to meteor crater down in Arizona? No, I haven't. No. Yeah. Our friend Clark Muir there, he's gone down there at least once sent, sent me some uh, photos from it. So do you have any gumption to go meteorite uh, hunting? Like, uh, you know, go up to White Court or any of those other places and actually see what you might be able to dig up? I would love to. Um, I believe, and, and maybe this is, uh, maybe this isn't fair of me to, to have this belief, but um, probably within the last 10 years or so, like, you know, you referenced that one TV show, Meteorite Hunters. Mm. I think a lot of these sites have probably been picked over fairly well. So, yeah. you know, if you were able to, you know, kind of be at the leading tip of this trend, you likely did okay. Uh, but right now, I think if you were to find, if you were to go to these known sites, I'm kind of guessing you're not going to find much, if anything. Yeah. Um, you really have to find some of the more obscure or lesser known uh, uh, impact areas, and then and do your searching there, or or like when there is a a suspected fall, you need to be the first one on the ground yeah. at that location, and you know hopefully you can find something that way. So I would love to. I just I've never really made a lot of effort to do that. I really feel like if if you got a decent metal detector and you wouldn't walk around like in those fields like out around the back of my place where I go observing. I mean, if you went and talked, there's like the, the big farm out there. I mean, they seem pretty cool. I've talked to some of the folks out there and I'm, I'm sure they'd let you on the, the right time of year to go, even just walk the perimeter of the field. I feel like you'd stand a huge chance of finding a meteorite because it's, it's a huge piece of land. And then uh, it's very flat and there's not, I mean, there's hardly any rocks out there. I can't ever recall even seeing a rock out there. So mm. I almost feel like every rock that's out there, as long as you're, you know, 50 or 60 meters away from the road, I feel like any rock you find out there is a high chance of being a meteorite because it's all just this beautiful soil that, that they grow, uh, you know, I don't know, they either grow like 20% of the world's lentils out there or something, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The, the problem with farmland is it just gets tilled into the soil, broken up and, and, you know, sometimes deteriorates too with the water because these things will rust away and, and, oh, uh, right. and disappear. Um, the, the impact that I was thinking of in Northern Saskatchewan, it's called uh, deep Bay crater. Ooh. And, um, so deep Bay is the name of the, the lake, if you will. And it's quite round, but it's the deepest body of water in our province. And it's 200, oh, really? yeah, oh, 220 meters deep. <laughs> And uh, 13 kilometers wide. And, oh, yeah, but uh, it's right by Reindeer Lake. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I knew it was some sort of animal that it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, you've got to go fishing there. Well, maybe one day. Yeah, that would be kind of neat. How far? Oh, man, this is way up there. Yeah, that's not an easy place to get to. Ironically, it's near a place called South End. They name all these places in the north of the province. Yeah, Wow. Yeah, it's yeah, it's getting up there. You can get to Larange. You can probably walk there from Flin Flon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'll pass. No, there's a road. There's a road. You can get up to uh, you can get up to South End by road. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. And then boat over. That would be a long boat ride. Yeah, you've got a boat though. I feel <laughs> yeah. like I feel like that. Those that would be like open ocean kind of boating because. That bay is, uh, man, that's a big, so that looks like it's what about six or eight kilometers across or something like that. 
that's uh, big. Thir- it's 13, 13. Okay. Across. Yeah. So yeah. that's big. Like that's oh, it's huge. Yeah, that's, it's huge. I think almost the size of St. Margaret's Bay where I grew up. Um, yeah, that's yeah. And it's part of a larger lake system. And what is that lake? That is a huge lake. Is it even? Uh, oh, that's, that's rain. Rain, that's reindeer, that's lake. reindeer lake. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. well, we've really gone off topic because I know nothing about meteorites, but anyway, <laughs> lakes on Google earth clearly. Cool. <laughs> well, in that case, Chris, do you have any, uh, any more questions about meteors? <laughs> I, I only have questions because I'm not a meteorite person at all, though I do have rocks in my head. Okay. Well, uh, do you have anything else to add, Shane? No, no, that's all I've got. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks Shane. And thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to subscribe in your pod catching software and give us a review there too, if you can. And we're always excited to get your observations or other emails to actual astronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. 